Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'm Tim Rasmussen, and you're listening to Pop Violence. Welcome, and thank you for listening to another edition of Pop Violence. This week, I'm honored to have a conversation with a special guest, Patience Kamau. Let's see. So I graduated from EMU undergrad, and I'm originally from Kenya. I come from Kenya. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, So I came to EMU for my undergraduate education, where I I, I studied... um, computer information systems, which was partially a business degree also. And I didn't really feel fully fulfilled, but I was young and didn't really know what I was doing. And I just needed to get through the education process. And I was aware of CJP being obviously on EMU campus. Mm -hmm. And I was paying attention to what the Center for Justice and Peace Building was doing. And a lot of it was very attractive to me, but, and there was a, there was a, a minor, I think in undergrad, but I had already gone too far through my undergrad education to start switching minors and all that without adding an extra year to my, you know, career of undergrad. So I didn't do it. But once I graduated, I began to consider taking, you know, doing my um, graduate education in peace building. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most of the people whom, with whom I graduated with in uh, computer information systems, which was a business degree, like I said, moved on to do an MBA. I knew for a fact that I did not want to do that. It just mm-hmm. was not where, <laughs> that's just not where my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so CJP was there and I started taking some SPI courses to sort of, you know, to feel it out. And yeah, so then I enrolled and went through CJP, my my graduate degree there while working also there. And so, yeah, it took, usually it takes people two years if they are doing that, you know, mm-hmm. they get their 48 credits and they can mm-hmm. do it straight up. But I, I didn't because I was working full-time to be able to actually afford my education. So I was working full-time and taking some courses. So it took me five years to finish my CJP degree. In, my, uh, in conflict transformation. And then I still work here because it's a, it's a space that allows for a lot of creativity and deals with a lot of concepts that are very relevant, I think, to the world that we're living in, particularly now, always, but particularly now, it feels very relevant. Yeah. So, yeah. That's how I ended up here. About you. And that's, uh, that's really cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Computer information systems. Yeah. I, that's impressive. I could never, I could never do that. Um, so. Yeah, it was, well, thanks for saying that it was, yeah, I would not do it again. If I, <laughs> if I would go back knowing what mm-hmm. I know now, it probably would not be where my, my joy, I mean, it was fine to do, but it was not, you know, 
I don't know, my joy doesn't come from that sort of place. I'm more of mm-hmm. a, and I know that there's creativity and obviously computer coding and all that. Clearly I'm aware of that. But while I was going through the education, it didn't feel like it was tapping a lot into my own sense of creativity, which I think mm-hmm. brings me joy in my own process of meaning making through life. Yeah. And so like, I, I obviously started, I reached out to you and started talking with you and became connected with you because I was thinking about doing a podcast and that was, you were the person at CJP that was in that world with the Peace Builder podcast. And so I was w- wondering if maybe if you'd be able to talk a little bit about that podcast and how that came about and sort of what's on the, on the table with that. So the idea of the Peace Builder podcast came to me on a lazy July afternoon. I was very hot and I had just taken, you know, it was summer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, summer seems to be the most creative time in my mind because I really, really like heat. Yeah. (laughs) I have a preference for heat than I do for cold. Um, Yeah. And I had taken some time off from work, which I tend to do to just sort of relax which incidentally, I think that's when I'm most creative. When I when I don't have to be producing, then mm-hmm. my mind is able to engage in what else could I be doing? What, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, what's, what are new things that could be creatively produced and created? And that's how that happened. I, I am a voracious podcast listener mm-hmm. and I was listening to a whole bunch of podcasts and it just out of nowhere, I truly can't have actually pinpoint it was not a developing thought. It just sort of hit me very suddenly. Like it fell on me like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. Oh, we ought to be doing a podcast on peace building. And then I picked my phone and tried to search whether there were podcasts about peace building. And there were very few. I think I maybe encountered two. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a field that is not crowded at all, which in some other areas, you know, some fields are very, very crowded. There are a lot of podcasts. I mean, podcasting yeah. is becoming a thing now and it'll continue to, I think, for the foreseeable future. And I was just really taken aback that there weren't peace building or conflict transformation or conflict resolution types of podcasts, you know, to put the concepts and ideas out there. Because I think what we do in this field helps provide thought processes that people, everyone, every single person can help themselves in self-actualizing their best selves, you know? Mm. And so I thought maybe we could do that. And we have a lot of people here at CJP who are, who are integral in actually shaping the peace building field or even coming up with theories and theorizing, you know, like restorative justice with Howard Zare right here. I mean, that, like there was just this resource of people mm-hmm. who have really great ideas and who are on the creative edge of these sorts of concepts within peace building. And I thought, oh yeah, we should probably have a conversation about this. And it also coincided with the 25th anniversary of the Center for Justice and Peace Building. So what the first season at least did was wrap in the history of how CJP came to be and where we could maybe move toward what, what places we could move toward going forward because the world is changing very rapidly. And what could be the place of CJP in that, in shaping it or also just being an integral part of it so that people are actually thinking about conflict transformation as a way of life, um, mm-hmm. something that we come to 
when we're creating peace accords or you know those high level sorts of things but rather these are things that we can engage with from a very grassroots day-to-day life engagement with one another so yeah. yeah did that and so now the second season which begins this week begins to shift a little bit from looking at the history of cjp and the the growth of peace building concepts and how people who teach within cjp think of those things to actually now tackling very specific topics you know for example well how do you design a deliberative dialogue process so that actually people communicate because you have to be intentional about that and how you create the spaces and such things we're going to be looking at such concepts um, more deeply in a way that brings people in and also teaches those who don't know you know some of these things i'll also be learning through the process and that was the thing is that i also found that i there were things that i was learning that i did not know as i was having conversations with these people well that's really great and yeah, I would definitely um, suggest that podcast to anybody who's listening to this podcast. Probably a lot of people have been exposed to it that are listening here. And um, I really enjoy it. And I mean, there's a lot of people on there that I know just through them being my professors or advisors or or whatever. So, yeah, that's awesome. really I appreciate awesome. the plug. Uh-huh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. And, you know, I think it's only appropriate, right? You know, you've been, you've been helping me so much. I might as well, we might as well put a plug in there. And I guess this is technically a podcast through CJP kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I worry though, that I might get in trouble a couple of times. Cause we've, I've had like, you know, I've been like, I haven't done any censoring of like swear words or anything like that. <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> I, I doubt it. Um <laughs> Now that we've gotten to know patients a little better, it's time to turn to this week's film, the 2017 romantic drama, My Days of Mercy. Now, Patience is going to do a really good job explaining a little bit more about what the plot of the movie covers, but I want to give a bit of a content warning that we're going to be talking about the death penalty primarily during this conversation, so we're going to cover topics like death, the death penalty, domestic violence, and homophobia, amongst a few others. So it's going to be a heavy conversation, but a really fruitful conversation where we're going to be able to confront a lot of the same ideas as our previous week where we covered Les Mis, uh, but with a little bit more uh, direct context to modern life. What's up, Pop Violence listeners? This is Tim. I just want to give a quick plug for the platform that I use to curate and publish pop violence anchor.fm if you are looking into starting a podcast i would say that anchor is a great option it's free you've got all your editing tools right there on the website and it's really simple to get your stuff distributed to a lot of different listening platforms and so if you want to go check it out go check out the anchor app download it for free or at anchor.fm if you're interested in getting started You know, this is the first of the um, of the episodes of this podcast that I've done where where it's not a film that I have sort of pitched to the reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is a film that you sort of pitched and said like this. This seems like you know you kind of saw my concept for the podcast and the approach that we're taking, yeah. and you suggested this film, My Days of Mercy. And I'm wondering uh, what 
why 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 that is why you were attracted to to this film in in sort of this sort of uh setting i guess so when i read your concept like you said it immediately came to mind and because it was a film that the 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 main theme of it is the death penalty in america and i was just i remember watching it when i first watched it i was i didn't know how to process i mean i did but i was just so taken up by maybe the normalization at some level about the death penalty that a country actually kills people <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's it's something that is sanctioned at some level was just so odd to me and i guess that's the good thing about popular culture in that you can put these things into like a film and then have people critically critically engage with what's being presented that's the power of film i think and in addition to that the fact that the story is told from a perspective of two women who then happen to fall in love but they are mm-hmm. on very different sides of the of this dichotomy one is supportive one is op- is oppositional of of the death penalty and that their relationship those the other thing is that their relationship even though they are two it's at some level a women loving women kind of film mm-hmm. that was not the story that that was not the main story you can step back and you can see that the story could be told if you cast two men it could you know you could still have the same story be yeah. told uh you could have the same story be told if you cast a woman and a man and mm-hmm. so that was very attractive to me in that i think culture is moving away from seeing same sex couples as this very novel thing that you also if you make a film about it it has to just be about that mm-hmm. and that was not i i loved that about it and i was like oh this is incidental to the story which was great because i think that that says we're moving toward a normalization of how different people love one another and so, so that was attractive for me that the fact that they fall in love and they are on completely oppositional sides of this and they meet through protests or support or depends on how you look at it um yeah. you know marcy yeah. is in support she, we we see her right at the very opening some of the opening uh areas that they're there to watch an execution of someone a partner i mean um someone who executed a partner of her father who's a police officer and lucy on the other side is there to they are there to protest the execution of this mentally ill man so that was interesting to me and also the final meal motif that goes throughout the entire thing that was very very odd to me because it's so normal mm-hmm. you know we all eat <laughs> yeah but and this is true i mean they actually ask these people what's what do you want for your final meal and yeah. i engage with that in a bizarre to me i ask myself okay so when i'm stressed which i i imagine everyone who's facing death is stressed i would not even know what i want to eat i would not eat for a whole week i probably would die of starvation before they <laughs> killed me yeah uh, because i would be so nervous that's just my inclination so that was interesting that i'd be like i don't even know how i would answer that final meal i don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> you're killing me who cares yes. about what my final meal is uh 
but it clearly matters. I mean, people deal with stress differently. Mm-hmm. But that motif was was interesting to me. That that was almost a time marker of the entire film. You know, we start mm-hmm. four months out, and then we see another meal, whatever it was, and then it says two weeks later, or you know, like it, it was a time marker. And I loved how they did that um, using such a normal thing of life to portray this very uh, bizarre culturally accepted way of dueling out justice i mean no yeah that's that's like you've you've covered many things and the the final meal imagery that they they repeatedly use throughout the film i found really um impactful as well and i feel like it's interesting because it like takes it's like this final this final moment where they the the system or the state like really wants to like center the person's humanity and it's like okay like we're going to give you whatever you want to eat like this is your final meal or i mean that's sort of the practice that you know it doesn't explicitly explain that in the film but that's sort of a a practice that i think a lot of people are familiar with um yeah i'm not sure i guess i'm i have no way of knowing if that's practice for every person who's executed but um it feels like it almost feels like an oxymoron. Like it's like we're going to acknowledge your humanity and then we're going to take your life. And yeah, it's it just I think that it was a great I think it was a good usage of of that imagery throughout the film because it that's I think that 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 paradox is what was what the film and I think any kind of critical look at the death penalty is sort of getting at is like yeah. this like is like what what, what are we what are we upholding here in terms of like, is this like a human or is this not, or is this uh, violent or, I, I don't know. It just, it's just a really odd thing. Like you are saying, kind of a bizarre, but somehow acceptable thing. You know what it made me think of hmm. Tim um, immediately when I was listening to your first episode of this, um, you, you, someone used, I think your, your sister, Mm-hmm. used uh, benevolent violence as yeah. a phrase and this fits in my mind I, I may not have fully understood how how you all defined that but this mm-hmm. because there's a benevolence oh here what's your what's the meal that you want yeah <laughs> but ultimately there's so much violence and what's surrounding all of that so that was interesting to me yeah that's a good connection for sure I, I think and that was from the, the Truman show where right. it's all about this the character Truman has like sort of this perfect life uh, quote in quotation marks, like this perfect life, but he's actually, you know, a, a closer look, he's really the victim of this sort of imprisonment. And mm-hmm. it's sort of interesting to kind of critically look at that. And and then I think thinking about the death penalty yeah. as well, like, yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, sort of how I don't, I don't, I can't think of the idiom, but it's like, you know, the, the, the hand that feeds you also something else does something bad to you. I don't, I don't, I don't know the image. I don't know the, the phrase, but yeah. it's, I feel like it's kind of that like idea of like, Oh, biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That, I guess that doesn't really, that doesn't fully fit, but I mean, but I think it's like sort of the state in some ways in this way, it's like this, like meeting out this uh, or acknowledging your humanity at the same time, like completely suppressing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I think that's like a huge thing for like this podcast in general that I'm trying to like grapple with is just, I don't know. I'm trying not to be like this, like 
overly cynical, overly pessimistic person that's sort of just looking at the world and be like, everything's violent all the time. And like anything that's not violent is just violence trying to disguise itself. Um, yeah. But yeah. in some ways it feels that way sometimes when like you take this, like, you know, like this, this one, for instance, like this, this act of compassion with the, the meal, it's like, this is, this is not compassion. Like, it's mm-hmm. just sort of this, I don't know. It's just, a, I guess, a way that the, the violence is able to justify itself or disguise itself or to, you know, Oh, justify itself. Yeah. It, it, it almost helps people live with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> with what, what they're doing, with what they're about to do by saying, hey, but we gave this person their last <laughs> meal. Look, we, we, we fulfilled their last wish. Yay us. Yeah. And I think that, and I think, and then I think that the bigger p- place where the justification happens is where a lot of the, the, the film like has a lot of deliberation, which is around how it's somehow redemptive or uh, beneficial to people who are associated with um, the victims of certain crimes or um, offenses that have been done by those who are on their way to be executed. And I, there's, there's just some really compelling debates that go on um, yeah. between Mercy and Lucy um, yeah. about that very topic. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting, like to be in the, like you, like uh, to go back to like your first, um, your first comment about the film, just about how this film, it, it, it just oddly sort of has like these multiple like things that are going on. Like it's like, has this romantic side to it and this sort of very endearing and kind of uh, whimsical, not whimsical, but I guess kind of just uh I don't know, it's kind of a quirky romance between yeah. these two because yeah. the, the characters are kind of quirky and kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, from the moment they meet, they are sarcastically engaging with one another. Yeah. <laughs> from I, I mean, I'm looking at the notes here that you put together about Kate Mara's character's name being Mercy. I mean, mm. it's <laughs> made fun of immediately by Lucy as soon as she says, my name is Mercy. Yeah. And... Lucy says, are you, I forget what she said, but it's like, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mercy and Kate Mara's character is like, yeah, it's Mercy. Do you have your one of your own? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's clearly, it's almost like a fourth wall mm-hmm. when Lucy says, are you kidding? Um, you know, trying to actually, I mean, that's, I don't think that that's their intention. Maybe it was, I don't know, but it's almost like a glimpse behind the fourth wall of, oh, how can your name be Mercy? And you're here in support of the death penalty with the mercy but then of course mm-hmm. maybe mercy thinks that what they're doing is merciful uh, um, it's not clear to me but she's also very conflicted i think did you see that like mm-hmm. i like in the very first frames they're there they arrive and apparently the people who are the victims of the crime for which the person being put to death perpetrated Mm-hmm. usually get to walk in apparently and watch the execution happen uh, which I thought which I also think that in and of itself is just so strange to me yeah <laughs> I was yeah. trying to imagine would I do that would I actually do that and yeah. I don't think that I would that's just traumatizing myself why would I watch someone die I mean I don't anyway um, who's being killed violently mm-hmm. the difference between watching someone die who's walking and sitting with someone who's going through the journey of death that's different than Mm -hmm. someone who's 
life is intentionally being stopped. But anyway, Mercy decides not to go in at the very yeah. beginning. She just doesn't go in. We don't know why. But she does at the very end, but she does it for Lucy when they are there because of Lucy's father's whatever execution. And that's interesting to me. Um, but I think, yeah, Mercy is conflicted. Mm -hmm. She seems sure, maybe, because maybe that's what her family expects of her. I, I don't know. Uh, her father is very clear, obviously. You know, like when Lucy ends up in their house later on in the film, and he realizes that the way they got to know one another is because Lucy. Um, I mean, she says that, oh, yeah, we met at the protests. And the mom says, I, I, but I never saw you. And the dad puts it together. And he's like, oh, she's on the other side. Mm -hmm. And the way he says that, you can almost tell, you know, it's with such almost a level of uh, disgust. You know? Yeah, he was rude. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me to to try and interrogate where mercy actually what her true feelings are which is interesting because it's also layered within her own um uh i don't know i think it's internalized homophobia because she obviously has she's leading two separate lives mm -hmm. when she meets lucy and yeah. when she goes back home she is this completely different person than she is when she's with lucy she is very she pursues lucy without any hesitation I mean, yeah. I was shocked when we, we saw her life when she was at home. Like, wait, what? This mm -hmm. is who you are? And I think that, to me, there seems to be parallel themes that she doesn't fully know what she wants, even though she has an idea. Like, like subconsciously, maybe a part of her is not really for the death penalty, but that's what her family does. Or maybe she is. I don't know. What were your thoughts about that? No, that's a really good point. I was, it just makes me think I, like I put in the, in the notes that I, we had, you know, is there any like sort of significance? And I don't know, like, I think that there's like the, um, like you were saying, the, the humor that's around uh, her name being Mercy, but I, I kind of like, I'm trying to like interrogate, like you're saying, if there's this uh, thematic or this layered uh, significance to her name being Mercy. And I think the the fact that she doesn't go in like you were saying she doesn't go in to watch the the first execution in the in the first scenes i found that really interesting just right off the bat because i I'm, I'm trying to like imagine her her name being mercy if she represents the concept of mercy and mm -hmm. it would make sense that she wouldn't go in like it's, it makes sense that mercy is not present at the execution because that's wow. sort of this that's, you know, mercy is not, there's no, is nowhere to be found in that sort of a process. Um, mm -hmm. And, and then, but then she does go in at the end. And yeah. I, that kind of brings me to this, this, like the, the part that was like splitting my brain in this film, this is where I, th I thought that it's, it, I don't, it's not like this, you know, revolutionary idea, I think for a writer, but yeah. it just, it really made the film to me like that much more layered was the fact that Elliot Page's character Lucy mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. both the on the she was both on the victim side and on the sort of advocate side because it was her father that had purportedly killed her mother and right. um, I mean I mean apart from that just being like terribly terribly traumatizing it was this it's like the state and the people that are 
associated with Mercy's character, the pro death penalty people. Um, yeah. I, I can imagine from Lucy's point of view is like this idea is being thrust upon you of like, you need justice for the death of your mother. Um, and justice comes in the form of the state or you know doing an act of violence against the perpetrator that just yeah. so happens to also be your father um, yeah and and so I bring that back to the idea of mercy being there and I think that's where like it gets really conflicted in my brain and because it's like is that is that the idea that mercy's there now because she's there with someone who's who is both the sort of the victim and the advocate like she, Lucy's family is sort of there for both mm -hmm. and I found that kind of compelling to, to think about I think on like the I mean like that's probably looking a little bit too deeply into it because I think that it's probably just because they had a romantic connection and she was there to you know be supportive mm -hmm. to her but um I no I think really you're right interesting yeah yeah I think you're right because it also jostles Mercy out of her I think precisely because, I mean, she, oh, she could sense that something was going on deeper with Lucy, but the mm -hmm. moment that Lucy tells her the full story, mm -hmm. you see that it, so I'm not going to be happy when they kill my father, you know? And I think that Mercy catches herself and realizes, oh, ooh, right. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little bit more complicated. And I think it changes the narrative in her head, whatever it is that she, she'd been feeding herself on just doesn't serve her anymore going forward maybe i think yeah i think that you're right and yeah it just it just brings up this like question i think that that oh i think mercy deals with in that because that was that was that was one of the what i was talking about earlier some of the deliberations that the two characters have that was like to me that was one of the peak ones because i remember you know i think lucy's line was like i'm sorry but you know the murder of uh, uh I'm, I'm sorry that a, the murder of a disabled man made your family feel happy but it's not going to work for me and and when she put it that way i was just like oh my gosh like this is tough you know um yeah, yeah. it's just and i i think that i mean it, it certainly like brings up like the the deeper question i think of like what what does justice really mean like how can mm -hmm. we how can we mete out justice as a society yeah um, and sort of overcome mm -hmm. you know h harm when harms happen but i also think what came to mind for me with that was it's it's interesting how it, it almost it's like you know let's think of this metaphor of being like on a on a track you know you're on this track train track you're just going and you you're perfectly comfortable and then you get this information that just sort of jostles you out of it and you mm -hmm. can't just keep going down that path anymore. I think it changed her to mm -hmm. actually, because in her case, it was so simple. Like they have that fight inside the RV at one point when Marcy tells Lucy, well, you know, for me or my family, I don't know whether she said her or her family. I think she said both her mm -hmm. and her family. They felt better once the man who had killed her father's partner had been killed. And yeah. It switches Lucy's immediately. Lucy just loses it. You can yeah. see. I mean, she doesn't say anything immediately, but you can see her demeanor change. And she just tells her, well, this is not fucking simple for me. It's more complicated mm -hmm. than that. You're talking about yeah. my father and you're talking about my mother. 
I guess Mercy's character that she says like our family felt so good after this this man was killed because he killed a man and I it it feels almost like very like what's the word I'm looking for mm, transactional kind of uh, uh, eye for an eye yeah yeah it kind of feels mm-hmm. like that and yeah and I was thinking about that with with Lucy and I feel like mm-hmm. Lucy's character is written in such a way in that it's both of her parents where I think it really exposes how such a, an approach to justice is yeah. not really transactional. It's not really an eye for an eye. It's, you know, so I guess it's like the Gandhi thing. It's like, it's just, it's just two eyes being, being lost, you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. to her, it's both her parents now are now yeah. dead. Yeah. And, and it's so this, this exchange that, that Mercy's family goes through the where it's just like, oh, we were able to, almost gain something back by yeah. having this justice meted out when in reality these are this is just more violence being done it's just compounding on top of it i believe in you know the the concept of justice even in the restorative sense or the transformative sense there has to be the accountability obviously i think that's like a something that we we're always confronting in in conversations where we we talk about or try to practice restorative justice is how how important accountability is um but this it's idea simple. Yeah, this idea that like the that the doing more violence somehow offsets the violence that was already done. I think Lucy's character really is a good character to to look at in order to sort of dispel or at least criticize that idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it disrupts the the transactional nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not that simple. So if you can't already tell, there are some striking similarities between our previous episode on Les Mis and this week's episode on My Days of Mercy. First, these are both very long conversations. And so I'm going to give some commentary here, share share some concepts, some frameworks, some theories, and then let that be the foundation for which the conversation is going to continue and sort of speak for itself. A second and more important similarity is that once again, we are confronting directly this question of what is justice? What does justice mean? And this time we're doing it through a story that deals with the death penalty. And the death penalty is sort of the peak and ultimate expression of the basic logic of how our nation state meets out justice, and that is through violence. That justice means violence, means harm. This centrality of state violence is not a new thing. We're not the first ones to confront this idea. The 19th and 20th century social theorist, political economist Max Weber pointed out that the exclusive characteristic of nation states was that they have a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence within their given territories. This really lets us know that violence is what animates the state. It's what holds it together. It's what it's composed of. The threat of violence, the usage of violence is supposedly what makes society run, what makes it have some degree of order. The basic logic there is something that 
is harmful though. And so that's where we're really taking this conversation. And that's where My Days of Mercy does a great job in giving us space to critically think about these things. The close relative of the death penalty, however, an expression of the same violent logic, is the issue of mass incarceration. And so I want to point out that the book Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis is a great resource to get a basic understanding of what this punitive justice approach is doing to people and how it is so deeply entrenched and deeply harmful. But at the end of the conversation that me and patients were just having, we bring up a couple words that come before justice that are not punitive, restorative and transformative justice. And I want to tease those out a little bit so that we can get a clearer understanding of what that means and also something to sort of juxtapose against punitive justice or the the justice that we're normatively exposed to. And I'm going to lean on the work of Danielle Sered as I do this, who came out with a book called Until We Reckon a few years ago and works with a group called Common Justice out of the Vera Institute for Justice, has done some really revolutionary things in this field. And so we're confronted with this question of what's the basic logic of these philosophies of justice and the punitive justice approach, the basic philosophy of justice that underlies our legal framework operates on a set of questions. And those questions are essentially how can we place blame for a violation of our laws that was done? Basically, who is guilty? Who's culpable? That's the first question. And the second question is, how should we harm the guilty person? How should we do violence to the guilty person? And that is a theory for presumably creating order or creating some kind of safety for society. That's punitive justice. This word restorative justice, this philosophy operates on a a different set of questions, a different approach. And those questions would be, who was harmed? How were they harmed? So the question confronts the harm that was done rather than the violation of law. And then the next question is, how can we heal or redress this harm? How can we make things right that have been wronged? And confronting it in that approach. Transformative justice takes things a step further and says, how can we more broadly make things right? Thinking about not only what was the harm that was done in this acute individual scenario, but also what is the societal and systemic dynamics that drove this to happen and how can we meet out some type of restorative justice that will also work toward upending those systemic conditions that played a part in perpetuating or facilitating the harm that was done. These are the types of logics that sort of make you 
think a little bit about how how can we reorient ourselves in regards to justice so we can move away from the storylines that animate things like My Days of Mercy. And so as we continue this conversation, we're going to continue to grapple with this idea, these ideas of what is justice, how can we understand justice, and how can we reorient ourselves according to that. For the dad to have killed their mother, because I think it is proven pretty clearly at the end, because of Marcy, interestingly, yeah. <laughs> it's her her being within, being invested in her caring for Lucy and becoming, coming to love her quite a bit in, in, in spite of her, Lucy's sister, Martha, being very oppositional to the whole idea because Martha, who is Lucy's sister, is very invested in the fact that their father could not have killed their mother mm-hmm. which that in and of itself can be interrogated because it's major denial i don't know have you watched uh the show chernobyl <laughs> have you seen chernobyl Chern- no i haven't no, it, it's that sort of reminded me this is a show on hbo that's about the accident that happened in chernobyl mm-hmm. and while they are what being confronted by the fact that this nuclear reactor has is melting it it, it's blown up Mm -hmm. and the guy in charge he is looking at it he's looking at people losing their face and he is busy saying no it has not (laughs) and that is interesting you know Mm -hmm. that that denial of something that is so right there in front of you obviously is a re i don't even know what it is but it happens happens in life that people Obviously, we're dealing with that, even like people deny facts and what have you. It's like, but it's here. Look at it. It's happening. Yeah, you know, that came up in my second uh, podcast. We were talking about Jojo Rabbit and yeah. um, my my friend Reka uh, was yeah. talking about a, a lot of people in her life that the more that she tries to give them evidence to sort of mm-hmm. maybe challenge sort of some of the claims that they make, the more, the more you know, strongly, yeah, the more strongly they hold to those, those very claims. So I think that that's certainly a thing. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that really stood out to me here with uh, um, Martha, who's Lucy's Mm -hmm. sister, because she did not, absolutely, she could not acknowledge that their father had killed their mother, which possibly if we looked further, obviously the film didn't go into that, but obviously that's domestic violence, which they were probably accustomed to, Mm -hmm. because on the other end, Lucy always suspected even yeah. though she would yeah. not allow herself to fully go there, Lucy, I think, in her mind, entertained the possibility that her father did kill their mother. Mm-hmm. And because she was a child and was much younger when it happened, Martha's narrative won the day and yeah. became what the three siblings, because they have a younger brother, Benjamin, mm-hmm. what the three of them believe. And that's why I think they go to protest because, you know, just being accountable or it, part of repair is actually acknowledging the harms that have been done mm-hmm. and accepting or at least acknowledging. And I think this is usually what's so difficult about why people maybe don't want to accept restorative justice is accepting that the perpetrators, and I'm doing air quotes right now. Mm-hmm. Well, they are. I'm, I'm not minimizing that. Usually, almost always, are also victims of yeah. something else. And so when, and I love that you 
use the word transactional. And so when we reduce this or minimize it to a transaction that you did this, so then this will happen to you and we'll wash our hands and we're all gone. <laughs> that mm. just doesn't work because we haven't addressed, okay, why did you do that? You know, because obviously now we can see at least with Lucy's family, yeah, I don't know, their father is on death row and they believe he should not, that he's going to be killed because he's innocent. I don't know, it's very complicated. But the two sisters were also interesting to me that one would not acknowledge it, even when the father wanted to actually say to her, okay, (laughs) to actually admit, she would not abide it. She actually walked out and just, she couldn't deal with it. And that was interesting. Yeah, that is, that was, uh, her whole character was, I thought really well acted. Yeah. And, um, you know, she was definitely a supporting character, obviously, but she she added like a whole new dynamic. I thought that was really, um, yeah, interesting in the whole unfolding of the plot. And it, it makes me think, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's just, it's so hard to confront the, uh, to me, it's hard to confront the question of like, I guess, if not, you know, if, if he, if he, if they knew he was guilty from the beginning, would they still have, you know, wanted him to not be killed by the state? Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I mean, there's no way to really know that, I guess it's like a, what if, yeah. but it just feels like that's like the question that, that needs to be had, you know, next is just like, what are we, do we really want this for anybody? Right. Even if they are mm-hmm. guilty. Yeah. Where does the accountability actually fall? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was, as you're saying that, I was, I was remembering that when during his execution and they go in and um, Lucy is sitting between Marcy and her, and her sister, Martha, and Martha is clearly breaking down from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. Yeah. And Lucy is just stone faced. (laughs) I mean, she's Uh just, I couldn't fully read that she was resolute and did not break her gaze. She just looked at her father, mm-hmm. which, which, which ties into the previous frames, I believe, when they went to visit him just before, you know, when he wanted to confess to Martha and Martha would not accept it. Mm-hmm. Lucy is disengaged. She's sort of just there in the back and like mm-hmm. whatever. I, a part of me wondered, does a little part of her now think that maybe he deserves it? You killed my mother. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but then when he is executed, her, she, her resolve, you can see it melting and she just breaks down and she stands up and is in tears and, and you can just see the conundrum. It's almost like she goes from, you deserve it to, oh God, no, you don't. You're my dad. Yeah. And that mix is so well put, just like you said, that this family is both the victim and the victimized mm-hmm. all together all wrapped up together and that that is that that makes a whole looking at the question of the death penalty very very complicated it, it complexifies it in a way that i think a lot of people don't think of it yeah i i agree because and this is something i was going to bring up earlier is this idea that you know i, I think the fundamental like almost uh i guess logic that goes on by, I guess, the state or by the death penalty is essentially this idea that, you know, because someone has, 
I guess, killed someone, then they deserve to be killed. And I think that there's almost like a devaluing of the, the humanity of the person who's done the killing. And yeah. I think that that feels almost feels like quite natural to a lot of people, like to just sort of have like a knee-jerk reaction and, or even, even like, even just like, you know, just a reaction to something that is truly a terrible thing and to just mm -hmm. like have, you know, that sort of a feeling. And, and I, I guess that I don't want to like, you know, uh, make anyone feel bad about that or anything like that, or sort of, I guess, go after yeah. people who are reacting that way. But it's interesting. I think like what you're saying with, you know, how Lucy reacts throughout that process um, or I guess throughout the actual execution when they're watching it, it sort of shows that to me where it's sort of like this, this idea that like, you know, this is still a human being just as much as the, the, the original victim was a human being. We're just, you know, doing, doing it, uh, doing exactly or similar to what, it, what happened to that person is happening again. And, but I think that the death penalties logic, I think fundamentally devalues the, the second person so that they can kill that person as well mm -hmm. um, and have it yeah. be something that's justified and but also I think a lot of that's wrapped up in like the idea of like the rule of law and like the idea that you know this is something that's been like legally decided by the um, the state and the democratically um, you know I guess agreed upon laws and things like that to to do that and mm -hmm. it's just it is a really it's a really tough it's a really tough issue to fully to fully grapple with. And it's interesting because a couple of the articles that we had uh, exchanged before this, um, looking at the death penalty and sort of con the contemporary con uh, context related to whether it's sort of all, a lot of the executions that happened under the Trump administration um, mm -hmm. in his last year, as well as just the, the death penalty in, in general, I feel like a lot of the arguments sort of come back to this idea that like we shouldn't give the state that much power yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that argument. It's that's one I, I feel like I still need to sit with a little bit more because it feels very it, it feels very like libertarian, like just right off the get go. Yeah. Um, although it what feels appealing. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking out loud at this point. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was interesting that um, before the the killing spree, mm -hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase um i mean the nation had not really had not put anyone to death in 17 years and then it just was boom 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 kill 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 as quickly as possible and mm -hmm. at least i mean and this was tough for me i didn't really i didn't i couldn't engage with every single story of every single person who was killed within the last year but i did with uh with the woman who was just executed um mm -hmm. in january but that was interesting to me because for her then i Cause I know, I don't know. I, you know, it comes in the news. Yes, this person is going to be killed. And then they say, well, yeah. And this is what they did. And what caught my attention is that it said, well, her crime is she had killed another woman. Mm -hmm. She had basically cut out a child of a, out of a pregnant woman, mm -hmm. which made me cringe. I'm like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. That's horrible. You know, it just, all kind of killing is horrible, but that particularly made me cringe, which made me wonder, why did she do that um, yeah which then I got into knowing that you know speaking to the accountability her behavior inexcusable as it was her killing this pregnant woman and taking that child and I don't even know what the fate of that child was I don't know did they survive I don't even know 
but this woman, the, the, you know, the woman who was just recently killed, when we go back to her life, I think one of her sisters, I think I, her sister says something about her being, apparently, so when the death penalty was reinstated in 1976, they said that it should be preserved for the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. um, and this woman's sister says, well, she was quite a victim. She was the worst of the victims because she had been, what, sold by her mother as a child as a sex slave or something and her father had done all these sorts of things not mm -hmm. and this is not at all to try and justify her behavior but a lot of this sort of violent act i mean it reminds me of hurt people hurt people mm -hmm. this violent behavior almost always comes from a place that is reacting out of violence in and of mm -hmm. itself it mm -hmm. was put there before by someone who perpetrated a violence against this other person. So the death penalty, to your point, of an eye for an eye, and you just lost two eyes, or how did Martin Luther King Jr. put it? An eye for an eye just leaves, leaves the nation blind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if we don't look deeper, like what, I don't know, are these people not redemptable? Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's so many questions. It's so complicated, mm -hmm. really, really complicated. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's, I think part of the reason why it becomes such a conundrum too is we're trying to think about the issue in a, in a, in, in a more complex way in a, in a society that is, you know, oftentimes uh, very like hyper individualistic to a point of sort of oversimplifying um, the dynamics that go into something like this. And I think that that example that you just shared is a really good example of that. It's not like, you know, I would never want to sort of justify that act of violence um, that happened. But mm -hmm. I think that if we were to pump the brakes a little bit on the individualization or just having the individualism be so central to our gaze and to think yeah. a little bit more about how, how is like, what is, what's going on here societally um, or what's going on here in a sort of any kind of collective sense, culturally, familially, uh, these kinds of things that would, that how this happened in the first place, you know, can we confront that? Can we, can we have that conversation? I don't think that our justice system really holds space for that in all honesty. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, like, and that's just sort of the nature I think of. Yeah. yeah the, the inability to think collectively that we mm -hmm. are interconnected. And, and I think you are hitting, well, that's such an important point because if we would step away from thinking so individualistically I think what the justice system and probably just the way we organize ourselves democratically or as societies, a civil society and what have you, would be that we would put an emphasis in creating healthier societies mm -hmm. where the likelihood, of course, we can never fully eliminate violence from this world. Mm -hmm. At least that's just me accepting things for mm -hmm. what they are. Yeah, But we can minimize the occurrence of them by having healthier societies that are not poor that people have access to education so that they don't feel the need to exploit their own children for money you know mm -hmm. yeah um, like it just gets so much deeper that if you if people have access to education to health okay basic needs i think the propensity for violent crimes reduces mm -hmm. which then we have fewer people to then, I don't know, 
hang at the stake and while mm-hmm. people come and watch and all that sort of thing. It just we just put resources in other places that then we should, I don't know. What do you think? It just, I, I feel like as society, we don't put our resources where they should be. And so we just easily default to the simple transactions, as you said, you did this. And so you must do this. Come. How can we improve society as a, as a whole so that aid doesn't happen to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. What that makes me think is I just feel like the, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with like the idea that, you know, if we were to put resources in other places and sort of reinvest in that way, and it makes me think of, you know, the idea of like, let's try to make a healthier society. And I don't feel like that's even like on the table in a lot of ways, or it's, it's the, the logic behind it is, is, is still very individualistic. And it's like, if we just preserve individual rights and, and push, push really hard down on individual quote accountability or quote justice um, then yeah. that can lead to a healthy society and I think you know the empirical data to just comes back in the negative folks uh, you know just like this it, it doesn't really feel like that's that's unfolding and I, I don't know if that's you know on the agenda though I think for like a, a nation states or the typical sort of nation state structure it doesn't feel that way at least to me I feel like the the state apparatus uh, in general is sort of this the the logic behind it the fundamental logic is sort of predicated on violence at, at the, sort mm-hmm. of the end of the line that's sort of what the, the 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 fundamental logic is like okay so if the threat of violence is hanging over the heads of individual people mm-hmm. then they will be then they will be motivated to you know keep keep the keep the law and keep Mm -hmm. order in society and somehow that will also lead to society being healthy and and people being able to have um you know abundance or at least you know sufficient and it just feels it feels like that's maybe not the best approach you know because you know whatever it whatever it might be i think whether it's through deprivation and poverty or whether it's through you know, actual, you know, police uh, violence or, you know, capital punishment, like we sort of um, are really centering on in this conversation. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, in, in our society, that's, you know, that's what's motivating people to stay engaged. There's not really any, I guess, I guess, I guess, well, I guess what I'm getting at is just, it just feels like the whole, the whole apparatus is sort of predicated on that. And so it, the logic makes sense when it, when it leads up to the death penalty that like at the end of the day, like this is sort of the final sort of um, way that, you know, the most extreme way, I guess, that we continue to, you know, enact that, that, that logic. It's the um, final outcome. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's, I'm seeing here the notes uh, that we, we had shared um, where you say, uh, why did the Brahmages support the, the, the use of the death penalty? And mm-hmm. I think it ties into what you were just saying. I mean, he's, mm-hmm what's his name mr brummage i'm gonna call him i don't remember mm. his first name yeah um he's he's in law enforcement because his partner was killed and it almost feels just because of the culture of being in law enforcement and being engaged more and this ties into you know the whole discussion has that has happened since may 25th after george floyd was killed yeah of defunding the police which 
in too many circles is completely misunderstood mm -hmm. <laughs> and is really about what we're talking about, you know, reallocating resources so that we can create healthy societies. I think the Brahmages are very invested in the whack-a-mole sort of, you know, this is where crime, you know, horrible mm -hmm. crime has happened here. Whack that. All right. It's popped mm -hmm. up over there. Whack <laughs> it, you know. And that's this just this, this, it's a losing argument in my mind. Um, it reminds me of this. I don't remember who, it's it's a much better story than I'm going to present it here. Uh, but it's a it's an allegory out there about people working somewhere by a river and they see a baby come down the river. And so they snatch the river, the, the child obviously out of the river to save it. And within a few more minutes, another one comes. And the idea of it is, do you spend your resources fully just paying attention to where you are and pulling the babies out of the river? Or do you actually go up the river and try and find out who is throwing these children into the river mm -hmm. and stopping that, you know, or mm -hmm. being, you know, addressing the larger issue than just being focused. And I feel like right now, how law enforcement, for the most part, in this culture, is so focused on reacting to individual crimes, as opposed to, like we said earlier, trying to create a society that actually eliminates the possibility of these crimes occurring in the first place. And I think that's why the Brahmages are in support of the death penalty, because he works in law enforcement, maybe. Mm. I don't want mm -hmm. to overgeneralize this. I'm not saying that everyone in law enforcement carries this mentality, mm -hmm. but I think it's an overwhelming one of where, yeah, you do this and this is the price that you pay. It's an eye yeah. for an eye and that's yeah. what we're going to do. Yeah, well, I definitely think that the logic, it seems, you know, I think it's it's definitely present in the in the system. And I think it is, you know, in in a lot of people, and it feels like in the Brahmages, just this logic that like, if we punish people, then society will be a safer place. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that that sounds very simple, I think, and like, just very normal. But like, does it really work? You know, I think is the question. I don't think it does. Punishment <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's shown itself that punishment is not a deterrent enough. Mm -hmm. yeah certainly um, i don't know it's it's I, uh, i'm not a parent so i i don't know but i i don't know i it feels to me more having a conversation with people and trying to understand what they've done wrong it's it's like engaging like i watch you know parents who have children when they air they have a conversation with a child like okay do you know do you understand what you did do you see how it affected this and that, you know? Mm -hmm. And that child is unlikely to repeat that error because they understood, you know, as opposed to maybe a parent on the other hand, side who might just smack them and be, don't do that again. Mm -hmm. What they internalize is the violence mm -hmm. that they've been yeah. hit. And so they'll be afraid of their parent and not really understand what they did wrong. I don't know. It's, yeah, adults are more sophisticated, obviously, but. I think the analogy works in general that I don't think the violence is deterrent enough wrongdoing. Yeah, I think that I think that our incarcerated population even like speaks to that point. It just feels like 
is this is this really working when you know the the that that population continues to increase and violent crimes are not decreasing and you know the the most the most policed communities have oftentimes have the highest amount of crimes and i think that that's reactionary but i think it's also causal um in, in a lot of cases and and so it's just yeah i think that the I think, I don't know, I, 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 at least maybe this is just my experience. And so I'll add that this is anecdotal, but it feels like in, in circles that I've engaged in conversations with on sort of both sides of everything that went down last summer um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter protests and the, the George Floyd um, reactions. To me, it, it felt like both on both sides i'm not i'm not equating both sides at all like i i, I don't agree with the the equating of those both sides but it it did feel like to me that i didn't feel like there was a whole lot of conversation that was going to that deeper level of like questioning like so what does justice mean to us like when we say that like how do we deal with harms when they have happened and like when people have yeah. done harms to each other um, yeah. we have a certain logic Mm -hmm. of how to deal with that that we that our system believes in and that's what it's predicated on is this certain logic and basically if we harm people that yeah. have done harm then yeah. somehow that creates justice or that resolves things or yeah. or i'm not sure what the end result is that's believed in that logic in some cases but it's it's the idea that you know someone who does harm or does some kind of offense against our values that we've decided on as a society should be harmed that's the basic logic and it's it, to me the the conversation needs to go to that place certainly because it's we, we we have to question you know whether that is that something that we as humans want want to continue to to live by yeah and yeah. i don't know and, and, that, that, and then the whole you know the whole conversation i feel like then we have to you know make sure to not operate only in the theoretical too, because I think that there's so much in terms of, especially race, that feels very relevant to this conversation as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. As, as you were saying that I, um, because the lack of engage, the, the lack of deeper engagement, as you said, you know, because people then just run to their corners pretty mm -hmm. quickly. And it's reminded me of, I think uh, was it the second, maybe third episode? Was it the second Jojo Rabbit, where you 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 all talked about the concept of regression? Yeah, um, and just <laughs> people not really engaging, really, mm -hmm. and just sort of re regressing to a very minimal minimal thought process. I don't know. The, the, yeah. I like the, the the definition of it that I now don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> but it feels that like that's what people do. You know, they just sort of you're confronted with this very complex thing and you're just like, all right, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go to this very simplistic way of thinking about it and react from that, from yeah. that point. Um, but yeah, anyway, I was just no, certainly. through my mind as you were talking about no, it. No, that's a really good connection, I think, back. And it's, it's, it just goes to show how a lot of these topics in these, these episodes are so interconnected and there's so much interplay. I wanted to ask you, what did you think of the... So the role of poverty in this film was interesting to me because mm -hmm. it's 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 presented it's subtle and it's not. Uh, I yeah. mean they don't talk to it directly, but it's very clearly quite central. Mm -hmm. And 
it presented itself at least within the very earlier, like the opening frames, you know, when, when they arrive, both the Bromages and the, the Morrows, Lucy's mm -hmm. family. They are in this RV that is old and kind of decrepit, which they call what an RVsaurus or something like that. Yeah. I think that's what Mercy calls it. Uh -huh. But the Bromages arrive and even their camp is just filled with these really shiny RVs, you know, they're just new and you can just see the difference in yeah. access to resources. And that perpetuates itself throughout the film mm -hmm. because obviously Mercy has access to laboratories that can do sophisticated analyses and all these sorts of things, which ironically ends up proving that their father did kill their mother, even though mm -hmm. they thought they were engaging it to free him, to disprove it. Mm -hmm. But they, they don't have this sort of access. And we see that they have a lawyer who is a public defender. I think he's, he is a public defender. I don't remember. I think. But I they can't. Think, even I think. Afford. Well, I don't. Yeah, is I don't think. Not? I don't think he is a public defender because, you know, the way that Martha is, quote unquote, I guess, paying for him. Right. Right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I liked. I mean, then the humor goes back to the humor with Lucy. Mm. When we see him leaving, we're not clear about the arrangement between him and Martha mm -hmm. immediately. I mean, it becomes very clear pretty quickly. But I yeah. think to me, what made me realize what it was. Um, oh, and this is what made me think that he might be a public. No, he's not a public defender, but he might be doing pro bono because mm -hmm. as he's walking out, Lucy sort of, who doesn't like him, jabs him and says, oh, how was the pro boning? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it chuckles at it and he walks away. But she's, you know, she's just picking on him because she doesn't like him or doesn't like the arrangement between him and her sister. But even him, he's not able to really access these high quality labs because they don't have the access. They don't have the money. I mean, he drives a very expensive car, I suppose. So maybe he yeah. does have the resources, but they can't afford to pay him to do these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was just interesting to me, the poverty. And they're living in the same home where she was killed. They move furniture around to cover up the bloodstains. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. that was interesting to me that, you know, that how poverty limits people's abilities to actually even heal themselves, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. No, certainly. I think that that's, I think that's an important layer, layer to the whole conversation that I, I, yeah, like you said, it's sort of a muted layer in the film but to me it's like when you the way you just put it with the the lawyer having the nice car mm -hmm. I think that that's like a great sort of topic and you know they show the car a lot like they I don't feel, I feel like they could have skipped a lot of the scenes where the car shows up the Mercedes yeah like that yeah. doesn't seem completely necessary but it just each time well I guess they wanted to show that Benjamin and and Lucy never wanted to be inside the house when he was inside the house. And I think that that, right. you know, is sort of indicative of the arrangement that Martha and the lawyer have. But I also think that the, yeah, the car being so nice is I think an indication of just sort of the justice system in general of just how, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a producer of an, an immense amount of wealth for, you know, a, a particular, you know, small percentage of people. Yeah. And that in and of itself is, is indicative of just like a greater inequity that's going mm -hmm. on, you know, that, that this idea of like, oh, the meeting out of justice is, is also, you know, this thing that's just producing like a, a ton of wealth for people. Um, yeah. And, and then I also think it, 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 it is, it's displaying how, 
you know, how, I guess exactly what you're saying that the resources or like the ability of, of people in, in an adversarial process, like we have mm-hmm. it, the, the, the center of our legal systems, it's, it's always, it's always going to favor the ones who enter that process with more power or more resources uh, from the get-go. Yeah. And we have this, this image of Lady Justice with the balance or the scale and the blindfold is that, you know, the system is completely disengaged from, you know, or completely fair, you know, it's completely, yeah. you know, a- equitable to those who enter the process. But I just think that, yeah, that that's just really subtle ways that that is, um, that idea is kind of dispelled as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pretty quickly yeah yeah, yeah. when well, it's yeah and and i think that it also with the the bromages or mercy's family being portrayed as like obviously uh much more affluent i think also and even like this i guess the it's appears the sort of the entire culture that she sort of comes from it seems very much like this I guess a uh, a quintessential or like an archetype of like American upper class. Yeah. And I think that that's intentional as well, or at least it, it it's just that that next layer of the film with with yeah. sort of Lucy being, you know, sort of I think an archetype of maybe like a lower class or middle class, uh, lower middle class person, um, and. Yeah, you know, it just I think it goes to to show the the, the interplays of these things. I, I I had an interesting thought when I was watching it though. Yeah. In regards to that is just that it is it is I think significant that they are both white going mm-hmm. into this process and I was thinking of the movie Just mm-hmm. Mercy. Mm-hmm. Um because you know that's a movie that deals with the death penalty as well but you know kind of more I think less so playing into I guess the concept of the death penalty and the concept of mercy and justice but more playing like directly at the idea that justice is exercised differently towards people of color right Um, and so I think that that's like a whole nother layer that this film doesn't fully confront or even really confront hardly at all it doesn't touch it at all yeah yeah do you think that was intentional I don't know and you know I what I don't know is how close this this film came out in relation to to that film and I don't know it's it's hard to say like I mean it's it's hard to say like what how would the film have felt differently let's say if if Lucy and her family were a, a black family or a Hispanic mm-hmm. family um, yeah. but especially you know if they were a black family like it's it's you know that would it would be a completely different film yeah, it could be completely, it totally would. The the very, the the little part that we, and I, I don't necessarily know that it has to do with race, but if we can maybe see a hint of it, is that the woman who who seems like the convener, the supporter, or mm-hmm. the, the cheerleader of the anti-death penalty is a Black woman, and she's yeah. very engaged yeah. in it, and she is very observant, is aware of their emotional needs, which I think shows itself when when she comes and brings Lucy some money, you know. She can sense that there's obviously, I mean, that to me, that very simple gesture there said a lot about how aware she is of the people that she is working with, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 
the morals constantly coming and she's aware of that of, of all the people who show up in opposition of the death penalty it's almost she, she has this motherly mm-hmm. um aura to her but he's also the one who's the cheerleader because like there's this one scene that i'm thinking about we don't really hear her say anything because the whole thing goes silent i think it's when was it in missouri yeah i think it's in missouri when lucy drives by herself mm-hmm. takes mm-hmm. the rv and sort of just leaves and decides she's going to missouri at this point the death penalty opposing it or supporting it has completely faded into the background because she's going there to see mercy mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that, that's all it that's all that's on both their minds. I don't think they are any longer engaging with this argument of who's right and who's wrong. They've gone past it. And that's the only, that, that we, we see a shot of this black woman. It, it's her body language. It's like she's a cheerleader for this side and you can just see how she's, mm-hmm. yeah, that was the only place where I can only see where maybe race was injected and probably they didn't that that was not a coincidence that they cast a black woman there mm-hmm. it was probably um a commentary on she'd be that invested because she recognizes how unequally the death penalty is meted out against people of color yeah that's a reality that i think that this podcast and definitely i i we need to acknowledge that you know that's that's the the reality is that it is meted out very inequitably in regards to race yeah, I think what I took away from that, which which I, I already mentioned here, is just how as society we choose to allocate our resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you say, well, because there's a disincentive, obviously, to reallocate resources in ways that, that center equity more, obviously, because there are people getting very rich, like you said, with the status quo. But my hope, my dream would be that as a society that we would move more into building better and healthier communities that then in and of itself, violent crimes or even petty ones, but mostly the violent ones, just disappear just because people are living happier and more fulfilling lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's all. Certainly. That's- Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.